The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know what's in short supply right now? Context. Every day, it feels like investors are making decisions based on the minutia of current events. Not the bigger picture. And that is how you get burned. That's how you lose money. Now, fortunately, we got some relief today. Dow rebounding 401 points. S&P surging 1.86%. NASDAQ pole voting astounding 2.95%. Although, as you will hear, we'll probably get some of that back tomorrow. Now, we had some good earnings just both last night and this morning. And there was a lack of destructive talk out of Washington and a benign set of conference calls. And it's allowed us to catch our collective breaths. And I like that. That's when you put in context. So now that we can take our time, let me tell you about what I see going on. And by the way, what I see not going on. Ever since this horrific month began, the house of pain, we've been buffeted by incredible headwinds from Washington that have smothered the tailwinds from Wall Street. And for the past couple of weeks, they've done the same to Main Street. Now, that's new, everybody. Main Street's being hurt. It's almost like everyone in Washington is trying to stop this economy in its tracks. The Federal Reserve's doing it intentionally. They think the economy is too hot. President Trump's doing it inadvertently by cheering the economy and therefore antagonizing the Fed. Look, I get where he's coming from. Every president wants a strong economy. They want to get reelected. They want a strong economy. The Fed always has a dual Goldilocks mandate. They need to make sure business is good, but not so good that it might cause inflation. Now, there's nothing wrong with either position in theory. But every time the president says the economy is red hot, his hand-picked Fed chief, Jerome Powell, feels justified 
in raising interest rates. Even as we've already had a tightening since the bottom uh, in 2008. In fact, it's worse than that. Every time Trump says the economy's smoking, but the Fed needs to cut out these rate hikes, I guarantee you it makes Powell want to tighten even more. If the economy's really fabulous, as the president says, then the Fed's right to talk about four more rate hikes, something Powell foolishly promised last month, instead of saying, you know what? Let's see if this next rate hike does the job. And that's a philosophy called data dependence. Happens to be that of Powell's predecessor, Janet Yellen, who, by the way, just so we know, was fired by, well, he said, look, we need somebody like Powell. We need a sterner hand. Get what you pay for. Let's put it all in context. The first part of this sell-off was driven by the notion that Wall Street was too bullish about earnings. Because with the Fed planning to slam the brakes on the economy next year, the estimates for many companies are simply too high. In a Fed-mandated slowdown where 2019 is a down year versus 2018, the estimates will need to get cut. And that's part of this readjustment period we're having right now. The second part of the sell-off was driven by the president's newfound policy toward China, which I can only describe as containment. It sure seems like he's less interested in negotiating, creating new jobs here, and more interested in destabilizing their regime. I think we've gone well past Donald Trump's art of the deal. The situation's been reminiscent of Sun Tzu's art of war. The problem is the tariffs are an odd way to conduct a war. Now, I get the rationale. If we hit China in the pocketbook, they'll give in. But, man, the whole identity of the Chinese Communist Party is based on standing up to what they call Western imperialists, meaning us. So they aren't giving in easily. And as they get more intransigent, our businesses with meaningful ties to China start to have some real difficulties. And that's what we've seen in this quarterly earnings period. If a company sources its merchandise from the People's Republic, well, guess what? You need to cut numbers for that company. Estimates are too high. When you cut estimates, what do stocks do? Maybe one of our companies wants to make a major acquisition, like United Technologies wants to buy Rockwell Collins. The Chinese authorities can hold up that deal, which is exactly what they've been doing. Now, we know United Technologies, and this is a great example of what's happening behind the scenes. It's a huge employer in China, one that's indispensable to the Chinese aircraft business. So you might think it would be rational for them to approve the deal. But maybe the Chinese government wants to send a strong signal that they mean business, and they block the deal. You better believe that would hurt. Maybe they boycott Apple. I mean, who knows? An extremely unlikely example, but something we still need to consider. We've got to keep in the back of our minds. At this point, when you listen to these conference calls, you hear question after question about tariffs, as in, how are the tariffs impacting you? And it's become quite dispiriting. Now, the president refuses to acknowledge that these tariffs are hurting Main Street. He just won't do it. As far as the White House is concerned, they've got bigger fish to fry. As I see it, Trump's treating the Chinese like the old Soviet Union. He wants to be Reagan. He wants that wall torn down. This time, though, it's the Chinese wall. But the Soviet Union was on its last legs in the 80s, while the PRC is a rising world power, like it or not. Meanwhile, the Fed chair also refuses to acknowledge the damage the tariffs are starting to do. He's as oblivious as the president. Honestly, if the president wants the Fed to be more accommodative, you know what? He should use a little reverse psychology. The moment Trump says we need more rate hikes, I'm betting Jay Powell changes course and says, hey, 
I wanted to tighten four more times, but the president's so bent on destroying the economy to hurt China that he's doing my work for me. So there's no need to tighten again after the next rate hike in December. Fed humor. Now let's go back to the context. Supposedly smart people keep arguing that we don't need to worry about the rate hikes. I say supposedly. Actually, I should say that they're supposedly smart because they're not. These people say the economy is so strong, Powell can tighten as much as he wants and still won't cause a recession. These people are chowderheads. Now, they're missing the point. Nobody's talking about a recession. We're talking about a slowdown that reverses much of the economy's recent growth and causes rounds and rounds of layoffs. That's possible, people. No economy's this strong. Maybe our GDP decelerates. Maybe it goes from 4% to 1% or 2 thanks to the lack of demand for autos, housing, construction, so many other industries, plastics, paper. Uh, that, that could easily be in the cards. That's the, that's, it's well within the realm of possibilities, even these, except the people at the Fed don't seem to realize that. Okay, what's not in the cards? Here's some more context. What's not in the cards is another great recession. In other words, this is not the end of the world, which is something you would think it was when you looked at yesterday's action. There's no systemic risk. The economy might go from really good to really mediocre. Hey, not great for earnings. Yet yesterday, the market was trading as though we were about to get hit with something more severe. There were enough disappointments on the table that it was easy to see how we could get into some real ugliness that devastates corporate profits. Unfortunately, that may be the price we need to pay if the president's going to keep playing these games of chicken with both the Fed and China. Now, I don't know who's going to blink first, but I do know that someone has to blink or else we'll repeal the very nice gains we had today for certain. Don't get me wrong. It's great that Visa and Microsoft and Tesla and Ford reported fabulous numbers yesterday, uh, along with a host of other companies. But those numbers don't change the underlying context. This bizarre Mexican standoff situation between the president and the Fed and the president of the People's Republic of China. And tonight's bevy of earnings, which include Alphabet and Amazon, are not inspiring people, even as their earnings seem quite strong. Revenues were a tad weaker, and the forecast not to analysts' liking. I want to see how things shake out with these two tomorrow. Uh, they have a history of defying the negativists, as we know. Nonetheless, I do have to question how Alphabet, a big position in my charitable trust, uh, as well as Amazon, how Alphabet could miss the sales line so disappointingly. I'm going to be working overtime tonight explaining these two to the members of the ActionLearnsPlus.com club. F- thank heavens we have big gains. But you know what? Really, Alphabet's got to do better. Anyway, bottom line, listen, if you only take one thing away from this lesson, it's that this is not some sort of rehash of 2007, where by that point, a crash was inevitable. They know nothing! It's more like 2006, or or at least a much healthier version of 2006 when it comes to balance sheets, where the crash still can be averted if our leaders know what they're doing. Let's hope the president and the Federal Reserve do a better job this time around. I need to go to Kathy in Wisconsin. Kathy! Hey, Jim, this is a huge honor. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, I'm glad you called. Thank you very much. Campbell's. Lots going on with this company right now, and there's a stockholders meeting next month. So we got the voting packet from the current board with lots of promises and plans to turn the company around. But we also got a voting packet from an independent called Third Point who wants to bring in their own board with lots of promises and plans to turn the company around. So who do we believe and who do we trust? Uh, you know what? I, 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 I will tell you this. It's really hard to do a worse job than what they're doing now. I mean, these guys are working overtime to do a bad job. And, and therefore, I think that what would be better is to go with Loeb. Uh, and the Campbell's people should rethink their view and say, you know what? Mr. Loeb, 
your people can do a better job than we have because we've been terrible stewards for this great American company. How about Greg in Tennessee? Greg. Hey, Kramer. Yo. I greatly appreciate the insights I've gotten from you over the years. Well, thank you. I feel like the least I can do is come by and take you to lunch next time I'm in New York. What do you uh, say? Well, I, I've taken about three lunches in 38 years, but it's a nice idea. Well, I might get lucky. You never know. Okay. Yeah. My stock is Eaton Corporation, ETN. Yeah. The company moved to Ireland for tax reasons a few years back. And uh, my question is, should we be concerned about the upcoming Brexit uncertainty? And do you think Eaton is a buy, sell, or hold? Okay, it's a great question. You know, it is a domicile issue, so I'm not concerned about it because it's a great Cleveland company. It's not Mayfield, believe me. Here's the problem. Stock has just given up a huge amount. But here's the good news. It now yields 3.66%. It is an industrial at a time when the Fed is tightening. So the playbook says you have to sell Eaton, but I think it's already been sold. All right, this market needs some context. That's what I'm giving to you. This isn't 2007. It's more like a benign 2006, which means the damage could still be averted. If only the policymakers realized that. They know nothing! Now, tonight, my exclusive with one of the best American companies, the $300 billion behemoth that is Visa. You got the card in your pocket, but should the stock be in your portfolio as it navigates an increasingly digitally dependent society? Buy cash? I don't know. Don't miss my interview with CEO Al Kelly after earnings. Then, with earnings season in full swing, we're finally starting to see the results of Trump's tariffs. And I'm going to break down the impact they're actually having on stocks. And Centene is feeling the pressure after earnings. But can the stock turn it around? It's particularly because the earnings really weren't that bad. I'm going to talk to the CEO, Michael Nidler. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this topsy-turvy market, what do we do with the stock of a high-quality company like Visa? 
On a day when the market's rebounding after yesterday's hideous decline, it is important not to get too euphoric. But that said, these payment stocks may be the safest way to play the whole financial sector. Visa doesn't have any interest rate risk. Visa's not going to get crushed if our economy has a Fed-mandated slowdown. It doesn't have debt that it's got that could go bad. And most important, last night, Visa's reported yet another strong quarter. A nice top and bottom line beat with double-digit growth in payment volumes and process transactions. $300 billion company, double-digit growth. Stock surged 6 bucks or 4.6% today. And it's now up 23% for the year. Although after the recent market-wide breakdown, Visa's still down roughly 11 points from its highs. I think the stock's worth picking up here, but don't take it from me. Earlier today, we checked in with Al Kelly. He's the CEO of Visa from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Take a look. Al, I've got to tell you something. I look at your company. You're a $300 billion company, and yet you're still, you're growing revenues double digit. You're growing earnings per share at an extreme amount. How are you able to keep this up? Well, Jim, we got a great network. Uh, this past year, we did $11 trillion in funds on 182 billion transactions. That's half a billion times a day for all 365 days last year. In addition to that, we grew cross-border volume by 10%, and we added 7 million more merchants to our network, and we now have 54 million merchant locations around the world. And we're trying to get into new payment flows and to deepen our penetration in certain geographies. I think as good a year as we had, and we're very proud of it, we're on to 2019 and, and trying to do more good things as we look ahead. I don't want to get too granular because our audience is a, t- a top-thinking group of people, but you mentioned cross-border. Could you please describe to people why cross-border is so important to these? Well, cross, cross-border transactions, first of all, cross-border shows that people are moving from one country to another, and that means people have confidence when people are traveling outside of their country. That's number one. Number two, we make a bit more money on a cross-border transaction. It's a bit more complicated transaction. So somebody in Chile shops in Sydney today. We have to make sure that we do the right currency conversion and get the money back to where it's the merchant in Australia has to pay the card member in Chile. Their bank has to get the transaction. So it's a higher margin transaction for us. So it's both a sign of economic strength and it's a higher yielding transaction for us. And we have economic strength if I look at Visa's numbers. We really do. If you look at our volumes, we're strong around the world. Every one of our regions was up double digits in the fourth quarter and for the year, except for Europe, which just missed. They were up 9.2% in the fourth quarter. So we're continuing to see very good strength. Particularly surprising to us is how strong the United States has been. We've seen really good volumes. And a lot of that, I think, A, certainly good retail, particularly fueled by e-commerce. Secondly, higher uh, gasoline prices. The tax law has definitely put more money in people's paychecks, and I think that has helped. And then we've begun to roll out this product called Visa Direct, where we're actually reversing the way our, our network works. We typically have been known for pulling payments when people buy something. Right. Now we're actually getting to the business of pushing money to people's bank accounts, and that's right. helping drive our debit volume and as well. And for businesses, too. It's not just business to business. Now, one of the things that it doesn't get talked about in your conference call, because these guys are old hands are trying to do the model, but it is still the great secular wave of, uh, of paper to plastic. Absolutely. The reality is that our biggest competitor in the world is Cash Inc. Uh, Still $17 trillion is spent by consumers on cash. Businesses are spending $20 trillion on cash. So think about that. We're the largest network in the world, and we just set a record being at $11 trillion. Still, so $17 trillion of cash by consumers, $20 trillion by small businesses and medium-sized businesses. 
So there is just tremendous upside. And e-commerce and things like Internet of Things are going to help push that. Now, you did mention early on that there were some, a niggling issue, I'm going to call it that, with China. Uh, and dual cards, can you just go into that? Because everyone's really possessed by what a downturn in China could mean. Well, in China, we don't have, unfortunately, a domestic license. Yeah, you're not really there. But we do have 55 bank partners that have issued well over 100 million cards. And in many cases, they are what we call dual badged, as you referred to, which means they have both a China Union Pay branding on it and a Visa branding. And if a Chinese citizen uses that card inside of China, it runs on China Union Pay. But China Union Pay is only a domestic network inside of China. So when that Chinese citizen travels on business or pleasure, it's a Visa transaction. All right. I'm glad we, we clarified that because it doesn't mean that things are, are not going well there. The reality is China is a good market for us from the perspective of many, many Chinese are traveling outside of China. And we're getting not only volume, but to your earlier point, cross-border volume. Now, we all watch sports, uh, whether it be World Cup or, or, or let's say now the NFL. We always see Visa being uh, really advertised. Could you tell people what you are in a competitive situation to get banks to work with you? You do a lot of branding. To, why, should people care whether they have Visa or MasterCard? Absolutely. I think that I talked about our network and its global breadth and reach being a great asset for us. I would say the other great asset for us is our brand. Anywhere you go around the world and you do side-by-side -side Visa versus any of our competitors, the brand top comes up at the top. And sponsorships are a big part of that. And because we're global, we tend to be involved in global sports sponsorships. We just got done with the World Cup in, in Russia, which was a great success. And we're obvious, and we just renewed our Olympic sponsorships. We've been an Olympic sponsor for 30 years, and we just renewed for 12 more years through the 2032 games. All right. Uh, I have to ask this because even though I had Sarah Fryer, formerly CFO of Square, on Jack Dorsey, who was very good and just blew out the Twitter numbers, but he keeps saying, listen, it's going to be Bitcoin. It's going to be crypto. It's going to be crypto. Is crypto a real challenge to Visa's uh, hegemony in this business? Certainly not in the short to medium term in any way. And I think if we actually think that crypto starts moving from being more of a commodity to actually really being a payment instrument, and I think it's got to be, it's got to, there has to be some market uh, that it becomes somewhat like a fiat currency in order for us to be comfortable. But if it goes in that direction, we, we will move in that direction and we will make sure that we want to be in the middle, gym of every payment flow in the world. And regardless of how it happens or what the currency is behind it. So if we have to go there, we will go there. But right now, it's it's more of a, a commodity than a payment deal. All right. I'm glad you clarified that. And then the last thing, uh, I have been recommending Visa and MasterCard pretty much since the show started. Some people say, well, wait a second, MasterCard on certain uh, metrics is growing a little faster than Visa. How does Visa close the gap? Is there a gap? You know, I, I manage this company and lead it for the long term. And I, I hate looking at quarter-to-quarter -quarter comparisons. And if you go back over the last four or five years, there's been quarters where MasterCard outperformed Visa and plenty of quarters where Visa outperformed. We just added almost $900 billion more of volume in 18 over 17. And we're, we're a much bigger network. MasterCard's a bit smaller than us, and they, they do try harder. They're a very formidable competitor. But the reality is that 
I, I would bet on Visa any day of the week. I believe in our firm. I believe in our brand. I believe in our network. And I think we have got lots and lots of upside potential as I look to the future. And I know you put your money where your mouth is because you've got one of the greatest buybacks I have ever seen. Retiring shares, it seems like pretty much every quarter. Al Kelly. Sam, good to be with you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Sir. Thank you. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. With earnings season in full swing, we're finally starting to see the concrete impact of the president's tariffs. And I got to admit, it's not that good. So on a day when stocks are surging, I think we need to address the fallout from the trade war. Regular viewers know I've been a lot more supportive of the tariffs than most commentators. I'm not some doctrinaire free trader. I believe there's a time and a place for a little protectionism, especially when our trading partners refuse to play by the rules. In theory, I think the president is totally justified in his crackdown on China. However, even I knew that the tariffs would hurt. I've always told you that. I said they'd be bad news for the stock market. It's not surprising that we're seeing company after company talk about rising raw costs, supply chain disruptions, and new obstacles preventing our companies from selling as much merchandise overseas. That's what happens in a trade war. But let me tell you what caught me by surprise. The steel tariffs aren't working the way we thought they would. For the steel industry. Remember, the first major shot fired in this trade skirmish was the president's 25% tariff on imported steel, something the steel industry had been aggressively pushing for. The idea here was that the steelmakers needed to be protected from government-subsidized Chinese competition that was flooding the global market. It definitely was. This is right. Sure, everyone who buys steel would have to pay more, but our steelmakers, wouldn't they be in a better shape? That makes sense, right? Or at least that was the theory. In practice, the steel stocks have been slaughtered since the tariffs went into effect. Just look at the stock of Nucor, the best steel maker in America and the chief proponent of the 25% duty on steel imports, I should add. Nucor is down about 10 bucks since the tariffs were announced. Counterintuitive? How the heck is that possible? The whole point of this exercise was to help the steel makers by making foreign competition more expensive, allowing companies like Nucor to raise their prices to levels that they get a decent return. And yet here we are. Wow. Last week, Nucor reported an underwhelming quarter, tepid guidance, and the stock's now at its lowest level since late last year. The tariffs aren't helping the steel industry. In fact, they may be hurting the steel industry. So how in the world did this happen? I mean, what is going on here? Before I get into the details, I need to eat some crow myself. I recommended Nucor stock over and over again as the big beneficiary of the Trump's protectionism. The CEO, John Ferriola, had been pushing for the government to get involved for ages. He was very bullish about the positive impact of steel tariffs. I believe him. In retrospect, though, I think Ferriola and I may have been mistaken. What can I say? Mia culpa. I got it wrong. But what do we do with the stock of Nucor now? Let's start by understanding how we got here. 
The cruel irony of this situation is that before the tariffs, Nucor was doing fabulously. In 2017, they had the best year since the financial crisis. Even with all the Chinese dumping, the company was making a fortune. Makes sense. When you've got a red-hot domestic economy and a synchronized global expansion, the, steels, the steel stocks are going to be in great shape. Then what went awry? Okay, on March 1st, President Trump announced his 25% tariff on steel, along with a 10% duty on aluminum. Initially, there were some exemptions for our key allies, but the White House phased those out by June 1st. Nucor finally had its protection from cheap steel imports, from Chinese dumping globally. And at first, it sure looked like the tariffs were working as promised. When Nucor reported on July 20th, the company delivered some blowout numbers. The second best quarter in the company's history. But the tariffs hadn't really kicked in yet. These results were more about a red-hot global economy. Still, management was incredibly confident that the next quarter would be even better. Fast forward to mid-September, though. Hmm. When Nucor provided its usual mid-quarter update, well, the numbers were, were nothing special. And when the company actually reported last week, there was actually a lot to dislike. While Nucor delivered a small revenue beat, the earnings came in weaker than expected, thanks to a charge related to the company's natural gas wells. I didn't even know that that could hurt them. Subtract that, and you would have had a tiny beat on earnings, too. But come on, that's not enough. But the real guidance, the guidance, what people really make judgments on, tepid. Let me read you the killer line when I was going over the release. And I quote, earnings in the fourth quarter of 2018 are expected to decrease across all three operating segments compared to the third quarter of 2018, end quote. Jeez, that's terrible. So why isn't Nucor practically printing money here? I think there are three issues, and they all relate to the tariffs. First of all, when the government slaps a 25% tax on imported steel, basically a federally mandated price increase, that's going to reduce demand. Now, when the tariffs were announced, everybody in the White House and the steel industry told us that the impact would be negligible. The thing is, we just spoke to Barry Sternlich. He's the CEO of Starwood Capital. That's a major real estate developer and lender. And he said the price of steel has gotten so excessive that it's actually starting to limit demand. It's gotten too expensive to build. And it's not just construction. Earlier this week, Caterpillar had some grim things to say about steel costs. Maybe 25% was too high. Second and much worse, there's more to this uh, uh, than steel and aluminum tariffs. We're now in a genuine trade war with China. We've got tariffs going back and forth on all sorts of merchandise. And while that might be necessary to encourage the Chinese to change some of their policies in the short run, it's just bad for business. When we placed a tariff on the steel that goes into, say, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, we figured the consumer could absorb the extra cost of the steel in, in the bike. But then Europe slapped a tariff on American motorcycles. We now have all sorts of new barriers to trade, and that's hurting the global economy. It's slowing it. Unfortunately, the steelmakers are very economically sensitive, which brings me to the final problem. All these tariffs raise prices. And when the Federal Reserve sees prices going up, they get very worried about inflation. That's one of the reasons the Fed's gotten so aggressive about raising interest rates. And look, you do not want to own the steelmakers when the Fed is tightening aggressively. Alas, they're tightening so aggressively that they, they foolishly told us they might need to overshoot to stop inflation. Now, the Fed has a real bad track record when it comes to overshooting. They often end up causing a recession, which is exactly, by the way, how the Great Recession got rolling. Now, long term, if we can negotiate some kind of deal with the Chinese where they agree to stop dumping steel worldwide, the tariffs may eventually prove to be positive for Nucor. But for now, the bottom line is that even the supposed winners from tariffs aren't winning here. And as much as I like Nucor, this is simply the wrong time in the business cycle to own a steelmaker. Even if these stocks have bottomed, 
I think the steel sector is simply too risky to touch for this moment. And that's just a shame. I like teaching China to play fair. But it turns out we need to take a lot of pain before we see any gain, if we even see any gain at all. The House of Pain. Robert in New York. Robert. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah. My, my question was about letter X. I was wondering, considering it's around 52-week lows, um, it would be a good time to get in now. No, no, because the economy worldwide is slowing, and the steelmakers are stocks you buy when the economy's getting hotter, and they are stocks that you sell when the economy's cooling. The Fed wants the economy to cool, and they're making it so that buying U.S. steel stock is a mistake. How about John in New York? John. Hey, Jim. This it's is John from Albany, New York. Good to have you on the show. What's up, John? Uh, I got a question about international paper, which I bought on fundamentals and for the dividend. Now, it's down about 40 percent for the year. And I've heard there's a Chinese company building a competing paper plant in the U.S. Given this new competition and market volatility, do you recommend holding, selling? Yes, absolutely. You want to hold it. The yield is fine. The balance sheet is fine. The stock is up today because this thing was thrown out along with the whole group as if they were going to be losing a lot of money. It's untrue. And I think that it's a great situation at these prices, although obviously it's up so much this morning. But I do like it. Let's go to Albert in Florida. Albert. Hey, booyah, old friend. Booyah. Hey, you know, I had a late great aunt that was retired from Boston University, economics professor. She used to have me go get the paper every day and come over and watch you and Cutler when you first started your show. Best education I ever got. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Listen, I have a question. I was thinking that Dow DuPont was supposed to have a conference talking about how they were going to unlock value on their company. And I was waiting to do something, and now I'm down 20% on Well, the world is down. I mean, look, we bought this from my Chapel Trust, which you can follow along at actualworksplus.com in the 40s. We sold some much higher. It's all the way back down, but the company is going to split. Look, it's obvious that people think they're going to miss the quarter. It could be like international paper, though. They do fine, and the stock rallies. I think we have to wait to see the quarter, though. And I'm sorry that you're down on it. Everybody who's bought it in the last year is down with the darn thing. All right, we're finally seeing the impact of the president's tariffs, and boy, they are a little problematic. Even the winners are not winning, and that means even great American companies like Nucor aren't doing as well as we thought, including me. Much more mad money at. What do you do when one of your favorite names pulls back as part of a market-wide period of weakness? I'm using Centene as a case study when I sit down with the CEO after earnings. Then, with the market heading higher, is it a sign that stocks have gotten cheap enough to do some buying? I'm giving you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Boom! Good to see you, partner. Oh, he gave me a partner. Yeah, Uh-oh. yeah I'm chief in you, Sparky. <laughs> we got no chatterhead. No chatterhead. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
Okay, what do we make of the companies that had the misfortune of reporting during this big meltdown? Take Centene, the health plan provider focused on government-sponsored programs like Medicare and Medicaid, with a stock that had been red hot before people started panicking. Centene reported two days ago, even though the company delivered a solid top and bottom line beat, the stock got slammed. Why? Because their full-year earnings forecast was thought by some to be a bit light. And that's not what you want to see in a turbulent market. However, if you're really worried about the impact of tariffs and the Fed's rate hikes, Centene's exactly the kind of stock you want to own here. So let's take a closer look with Michael Nidorf. He's the chairman and CEO of Centene. Get a better sense of the quarter where the company's headed. Mr. Nidorf, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Good to see you. Good to see you, Mike. Love to see you. All right. Uh, sometimes in this earnings period, there have been not, there's been not enough time to reflect. And that means people sell. Uh, I went through the quarter, and darn it, I thought it was a good one. So maybe you can walk me through where either I'm either wrong or right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There were a couple issues that I don't think t- people took time before they wrote their notes and questioned to understand. One was the taxes, the tax rate. Right. If you look at the gap, we had like a $24 million tax. Right. If you look at the adjusted, it was 490. Okay. okay. Now, so they said, they looked at the 24, said you had a tax benefit. Well, we didn't. What happened is we took a deduction for the closing costs for Fidelis. For Fidelis, which is okay. a gigantic acquisition, which, is which you said. Million. And you said that the acquisition's going right. well. People didn't seem to hear that. They just talked so, about the adjustment. So they thought we made earnings and beat it. They didn't. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. The second thing they didn't, I don't think they fully understood. We had a one-time gain from a risk adjustment for the uh, in-home support services program that had been discontinued in California. Okay. We also had a one-time expense on the uh, veterans uh, mm. program that we shut down. And so the, the one was $140 million the gain. There was a $110 million expense. Now, we don't like to take one-time gains and put it in the earnings because we don't think that's appropriate. Right. Then they'd have a complaint. So we took an additional $30 million that was still surplus in that and put it into our foundation. So it was a wash. Right. So when you look at it, the beat, the couple cent beat on concern was a clean beat. Yeah, definitely. We also we raised guidance on the year. We gave good guidance. Uh, we gave a sense of what would 19 look like in terms of earnings. We've already told them that we have at least $69 billion, up about $9, 10000000000 billion over this year. So, I mean, everything about it was and, strong. And I liked uh, four new states. And a bunch of counties for yeah. 2019, actually pretty big, right? I mean, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, these are big states. Right. So it's all good. Okay. Now, there was a line in the conference call that I really think explains even more about what's going on. You say, oh, and I just want to add that I think that what's really important is we change lenses to a $60 billion company, that there's going to be adjustments. I think a lot of people, Michael, think of your company as small. Right. But you've made some fabulous acquisitions, and now you're up there in size. Maybe people don't have people have to adjust the way they look at Centene. Yeah, I couldn't. I'm happy you brought that up. We're we're, we're pushing to be a, a Fortune 50 company. Right. And when you have that kind of, we're going to do 70 billion plus next year. When you have that kind of scale and size, you're going to have things that come up that you write off, and things. it's just normal. Any large company has it. Right. But I think people still see us as this little 10 billion dollar company. We were. Four years ago. Okay. All right. Now, uh, we got a midterm election coming up. Uh, I know the defense stocks were all down today because people think the Democrats are going to win. Should I be thinking, if, as I'm, if I am a Centene shareholder uh, or wanting to buy it, that if the Democrats take uh, the House, that is good for Centene? Well, I think, I think there'll be some balance. I mean, I'm, I'm an individual that believes that one, one of the three branches, when it's the other party, we get better government. 
And I'm not saying that whether it be Democrat no. or Republican, I'm being okay. bipartisan, okay? I believe that if, if that happens, we'll see some negotiations and we'll, we'll end up with a lot of things better and our program will be that much stronger as well because there will be solid discussions about what it should be okay. and not the political. The one comment I will make, and I've told this to them in Washington, we have moved from policy to politics. Right. Let's get back to policy. Yeah, that would be great. Now, um, t last night, Amgen, they have this really fabulous anti-cholesterol drug, um, Repatha. And what they did was they cut the price dramatically because they said that Medicare wasn't, uh, wasn't covering it. They didn't like it. Now, when you see a dramatic decline in price of a drug, does that hit you and say, you know what, that's now at some level that's finally reasonable for the copay. We're going we're gonna to cover it. Uh, for, how does it work? We have to have a therapeutic coverage of any disease. Okay. So if there's a product that's similar to it, that's not as expensive, and, the, and we have a P&T committee of only physicians okay. who make that decision, and they say that product should now be added to it, it's done. We don't make that decision. I depend on physicians to do it. We are very much physician-driven. Well, that's great. And the last question I have is, it, it's kind of a one that I think a lot of people have to do. Do people know in this country what open enrollment means? I'm not sure they do. I think some of the people now that have been signing up do get it. I mean, right. we, we've had 80% re-enrollment the last that's couple good. of years. I don't, I don't know that they fully understand and what the process is. And the government has not made it easier. Right, and that's what I think. I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's a real problem for people watching the show and a lot of people who don't. That's Michael Nodorf, chairman and CEO of Centene. They've got a December 14 analyst meeting. You want to be in this stock before it happens. Their money's back in the break. It is time, and it's time for the light around. Of course, one of the scenes of Bye Bye Bye. Just the call stock. Play the sound, and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That is time for the light round. Come everybody. Let's go to Josh in California. Josh, booyah from Los Angeles. Nice to have you. Stock, stock is Take Two Interactive. Okay, Take Two Interactive got some incredible reviews for Red Dead Redemption. The stock's up big. Strauss Selig may have another huge hit on his hands. And we do like the stock. Let's go to Gregory in California. Gregory. Professor Kramer. Big bull tonight today. I'm still looking my uh, wounds from yesterday, but, uh, but they're healing. Sage Therapeutics. Okay, that's Jeff Jonas. He's one of my favorites. We did... Um, uh, I did a couple conferences with him. I think the company's got some terrific central nervous system disorder uh, drugs. I'm bullish. Ah. Let's go to Paul in New Jersey. Paul. My question's regarding Red Hat, ticker RHT. I'm wondering well, if they're Well, I'll tell you, Jim Whitehurst didn't do him any favors that last quarter. He didn't really explain it that well. But I got to tell you, I think the next one's going to be better. I would be a buyer of Red Hat ah. down here. A cloud king. Now, remember, the cloud's going down tonight because Amazon and Alphabet. Everybody hates them all over again. Need to speak to Brett in Florida. Brett. Booyah, Framer. Booyah. Booyah from Naples, Florida. AAP members. We have your book, Get Rich Carefully and Street Addict. Big fans, I have a question on MZR, uh, Mazer Robotics. Well, it's, uh, it's being bought, so it's kind of done. First of all, thank you for subscribing to uh, being a member of the ActionLearnsPlus.com club. We'll have a lot of stuff on tonight's earnings, of course. And I do think that Mazer, you're just going to take the money and run. You did a great job with it. Florence in New York. Florence. Yes. Hi, Jim. It's very good to speak to you. I've been a follower of yours for many, many years. Oh, thank before you. Before you were on TV, even. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, what I'm calling about, um, 
I need to take a tax loss, and I have one on Donnelly Financial Solutions. That's yeah. D-F-I-N. And I was wondering what you think it's Yeah, I gave up on those guys. I did a big piece about how I was just, you know, it's just not coming together for them, and I don't want you to be in it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Did the market finally bottom today, or was this yet another fakeout, like Tuesday's huge intraday rebound? We certainly have to ask that after Amazon and Alphabet seems to have disappointed a bunch of people. But to answer the question, you need to know how these reversals actually work using some mechanical issues. Let me walk you through them. First, bottoms are almost never formed when everything's hunky-dory. During the Great Recession, we bottomed in March of 2009, when Ben Bernanke told 60 Minutes of all places that he wasn't going to let another bank fail. That was very good news for the stock market because we'd been hearing calls to nationalize the financial system. But it was still a terrifying moment to own stocks. It's not like Bernanke spoke and everybody said, hey, there we go, the pressure's off, let's do some buying. The economy was still in free fall, investors were still terrified, and it was not at all obvious that things were going to get better. The thing is, there's no bell that goes off at the bottom that tells you, Phew, the all clear has been sounded, and this month, the worst since November of 2008, is finally over, so let's go do some buying. However, we do have some technical signposts that I think can help us out. They're unemotional. For example, on Tuesday of last week, when the Dow roared higher, up more than 500 points, we checked in with Mark Sebastian, our resident VIX expert. He told us that the whole move would need to be repealed before we could truly bottom. I don't know who thought that, but boom, he nailed it. We got a huge decline soon after, and the VIX, the volatility index, traded up to nearly 29 in lockstep with the decline. Remember, the VIX measures fear. So naturally, it flies up when the stock market plummets, right? we got to think like that. We then went back to Sebastian to see if, he'd seen the, if he thought we'd seen the bottom. No, he said, no, 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 no. Not until we had another huge down day. And the VIX makes a lower high because that tells us there's less fear in the system and therefore there's going to be buying. And that gives you... A, bit of an all-clear sign. Well, guess what? When the market broke down yesterday, the VIX stopped well short of its previous high, even as the S&P 500 had a much worse decline. As far as Sebastian's concerned, that means it's now time. It's okay. That's his method of telling us a bottom is at hand. Now, how about that S&P oscillator I like to talk about so much, the one that tells us whether there's too much selling pressure? Well, it continues to show that we're oversold. However, it's not as oversold as it was back in February. That suggests we could trade down some from these levels. What about sentiment? Once again, I'm hearing a lot of people say that they think the market's rigged against them by the big boys. Had a question just about that yesterday. However, my Twitter feed still isn't as negative as I'd like. But then, well, let's think about it. I haven't exactly been a cheerleader for this market lately. So I don't know if my Twitter feed is as good a barometer as it has been maybe other times. Finally, one more trick tells me that we may not have truly bottomed yet. The New York Times has an article about the market's losses on the front page. But it's only a one-column piece, and it's stuck on the left-hand side, buried, not the right-hand top where your eye naturally goes. Normally, the pain tends to stop only when the newspapers start giving it wall-to-wall coverage. Plus, by the way, when I walked to, I was on Wall Street this morning uh, for Squawk on the Street, I saw no satellite trucks. 
In other words, there may not be enough media interest, Main Street media interest yet. You really need to see the terror reverberating beyond the business section before you can be truly confident that we've seen a bottom. So where do I come out on all these totems? When you put them all together, we haven't reached the extremes of negativity that I'd like to see. But on the other hand, our best charters say the bottom might be here. My gut says you can like this market for a trade, but unless something fundamental changes with the White House or the Federal Reserve, it's only a trade because the carnage could resurface at any moment. Stick with Craig. Long-time viewers know that two of my favorite stocks are Amazon and Alphabet. And I think people are going to give up on them again, as they always do. This time it's because people feel the revenues weren't there. All I am saying is if you take a longer-term view, you may realize that these are two very good companies that are doing a lot that is right and don't have China exposure. But I understand, I understand we're in panic mode. We had a nice respite from panic. It'll start all over again tomorrow. Panic's not a strategy. Let's say there's always a bull market somewhere. Promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.